0: Turn to John chapter 15 tonight. One of the most delightful words in any language, certainly in ours, is the word friend. Webster's dictionary defines a friend this way one attached to another by affection or esteem. Also, one that is not hostile. And third, one who supports and sympathizes with us. If you're like most people, you've had many acquaintances in life and few friends. True friends. They have been highlights in your life. In fact, if you look back over your life, the different eras of your life can be marked by the friends that you've had. The friends you grew up with in grade school. I still remember meeting Dave McCachran, Alan Cory's. I think of friends in high school, Ron Tyre, Shelley, Gino, and others. Good friends. And I remember doing certain things with those friends that parents and teachers and legal authorities didn't appreciate <laughs> as much as we did at the time. But I remember those friends that I did those things with. Truth is, life would be much poorer without friends, without such attachments, without such people to take the edge off of so many experiences in life. Let me take you to a third grade classroom for just a moment. There's a nine-year-old kid sitting at his desk. All of a sudden, there's a puddle between his feet and the front of his pants are wet. He thinks his heart is going to stop because he can't possibly imagine how this happened. It has never happened before, and he knows that when the boys find out, he'll never hear the end of it. When the girls find out, they'll never speak to him again for as long as he lives. The boy believes his heart is going to stop. So he puts his head down, and he prays this prayer. Dear God, this is an emergency. I need help now. Five minutes from now, I'm dead meat. By the way, that's a great prayer. That's honest. He looks up from his prayer, and here comes the teacher with a look in her eye that says he's been discovered. As the teacher is coming to snatch him up, a classmate named Susie carrying a goldfish bowl filled with water comes, and Susie trips in front of the teacher and inexplicably dumps the bowl in the boy's lap. He pretends to be angry. But all the while, he is saying, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, the boy is the object of sympathy. The teacher rushes him downstairs, gives him gym shorts to put on while his pants dry out. All the children are on their hands and knees around the desk cleaning up the mess. Sympathy is wonderful. The ridicule that should have been his Has been transferred to someone else, Susie. As the day progresses, the sympathy grows better and Susie's ridicule grows worse. At the end of the day, they're waiting for the bus. Susie has been shunned by the other children. The boy walks over to Susie and says, Susie, you did that on purpose, didn't you? Susie whispers back, I wet my pants once too. That's a true friend to take all of that ridicule. Well, today, tonight, we want to look at a very special kind of friendship. A friendship that exists between us, God's children, and Jesus Christ. It's a friendship Jesus himself describes. It's a friendship Jesus himself initiates, Jesus himself nourishes, and Jesus himself sacrifices for. There is nothing quite like it. Let's look, beginning in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. There's a word that has only been used once in the entire Gospel of John. It was used for Lazarus. Lazarus, our friend, is sick. Now Jesus uses the word again three times in short proximity speaking of His disciples. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, the emphasis clearly on, is on the friendship that Jesus has toward his disciples, whom he designates as friends. But we want to look at it, at it in two ways. Not only, what kind of a friend is Jesus? Because we have a hunch, even before we study it, that he's a pretty good one. We know that by experience. We're going to look at that more in depth. But then also, what kind of a friend am I to Jesus? Let's first of all look at Jesus, the best friend ever. Now keep in mind the context. There's only a few hours remaining. Jesus has left the upper room with his disciples. He is somewhere in between the upper room in upper Jerusalem to the other side of Jerusalem and the outskirts called the Garden of Gethsemane. He's walking with his disciples. He's sharing the last few moments with his friends. They've been with him three and a half years. He soon will be killed. If you look at verse 16, I'll take you there first because I'm giving you sort of an order for this. Uh, Jesus selected the disciples as friends. He made a choice. He said, you did not choose me, which I think is an interesting way to talk about it and we'll discuss it. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, we've already discussed fruit bearing a few verses back. But what interests me is how he words this selection. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Now, one of the marks of human friendships is choice, is autonomy of choice. We pick our friends. We choose our friends. And the choice has to be a mutual choice. It can't be one-sided. When you meet a person, there's three possibilities. Possibility number one, you don't like the person. And that person doesn't particularly like you. And so you want to be civil, you're polite, you exchange niceties perhaps, but no friendship will develop. Possibility number two, you like that person, that person doesn't like you. So you can be nice all night, you're not going to get very far. Uh, Friendship isn't going to develop. Possibility number three, you like that person, that person likes you, there's a mutual agreement, you decide to hang out, you you hit it off right off the bat, and a friendship of some kind will develop. But in this verse, Jesus says, we are friends not because you chose that, but it almost sounds like a unilateral choice. It is not, but it sounds that way. You didn't choose me, I was the one that chose you. Now, why does he word it that way? For a few reasons. Number one, this speaks to us of Jesus' position. He is of such importance and such rank that he can say, you didn't choose me, I chose you. The friendship depends on him. Example, whenever you or I meet someone that we think is above us, in in some degree, in rank, in importance, in intelligence, in professional skill, The relationship of friendship is a result of them allowing us to know them. The keys are really in their hands, not ours. It's they, not we, who decide if we're going to get better acquainted just by virtue of their position. I was watching the other night on television. I don't know what channel it was on, but uh, they showed Mariah Carey and she was showing her house. The singer was showing her house. It was a quite impressive house. And it was on different levels. And she took the camera crew down to the lower level. Quite nice, but she said, this is for my friends, but these are the friends that I don't want to bring up to the top level. Because I have certain things up there, I don't want to get them broken, etc. I still want to hang out with them, but this is where I keep them. In the lower level. When you're of that, ilk of importance, you can make those kind of distinctions. You have enough money to build levels in your houses to do that, but you can make that kind of choice. When Jesus says, you didn't choose me, he's speaking of his initiation in it. He's God. And the Bible says, we love him because he first loved us. So this speaks to us of his position. Second, this speaks of his election when he says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. That he made a pre selection, or what we would call predestination. Ephesians 1 sheds light on this. Paul wrote, He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When did God choose you as his friend? After he knew you? Before you were even around? Before you had the capability to be friendly. Before you ever existed, He chose you before the foundation of the world. It's an important thought. Preaching does not save unless it is activated by God's election. And I'll also add by human choice. I'm not going to get into a debate between Calvin and Arminius tonight. It's been done, it's been fruitless. We'll move on. But this is what it's like. If you throw a rope to a drowning man, the rope won't save him by itself. You have to grab a hold of it. That's your choice. But there has to be somebody at the shore pulling you to safety. That's election. Both of those are true. Now, I find a lot of people that get real hung up on this and they don't like this whole idea. How can God choose people before they're born? Answer. He has an advantage you don't have. It's called foreknowledge. He knows what the, the heart of every human being and the response of every heart will be before that human being is ever on the earth. Psalm 90 says, We spend our years as a tale that has already been told. It's God's advantage. And so God chooses us based on His foreknowledge. That's what Peter said. He said in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Picture it this way. You see a door to heaven. And on the front of the door it says, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So you're standing out there going, Okay, I'll do it. I choose to go through that door. And you walk through the door... And then as it closes behind you, there's a sign on the back side of the door that says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. You chose only to discover you have been chosen. Now you may still persist and say, well, that's not fair. Why? Well, maybe God didn't choose me. Oh, I can prove to you that He did choose you. If tonight you will give your life and heart to Jesus Christ receive Him as your Savior and as your Lord, you'll discover He chose you before you were ever born. Well, I'm not going to do that. Maybe He didn't choose you then. (laughs) But whosoever will, let Him come, the Bible says. If you want to come, come, and you'll discover that the choice has been made. But let's move on. Jesus said, I chose you, you didn't choose me. This speaks also. Not only of his position, not only of his election, but of his affection. Listen, if he knows all about us before we're born and he chooses us anyway, that's love. Charles Spurgeon says, it's a good thing he picked me before I was born. He never would have chosen me after I was born. (laughs) But the fact is, he did know about you before you were born and he chose you anyway. Now think about the disciples. He's saying this to His disciples. Eleven of these guys, did He know about them before He picked them? Did He know that there was Peter, He's going to deny him. Here's Peter, in a few minutes He's going to perform accidental ear surgery on somebody in the garden. Did He know that? Yes. And what about Thomas? Did He know that Thomas is going to doubt him? Yeah. Did He know that Judas, who had already left, would betray Him? Oh yeah, way before. But He chose them anyway. Have you ever thought of the motley crew, not the rock band, but the disciples that Jesus worked with. Jesus chose a tax collector, Matthew. Jews hate tax collectors. They're high on the list of people I choose to hate forever. Tax collectors, number one. Because they work for the Roman government and rip off the Jewish nation. But then Jesus on the same team picked Simon Zelotes, or a zealot which was a religious political party sworn to kill anyone associated with Rome, if they could, it was like a terrorist. To have a tax collector and a zealot on the same team is like having a Marine and a Taliban on the same team. (laughs) It would have been interesting if the scripture would have recorded the conversations between these two. Jesus picked them. In fact, He spent all night in prayer before He did. Then there was James and John, sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them sons of thunder. Why? Because they wanted to kill all of the Samaritans for not opening up their doors to Jesus. So Jesus called them sons of thunder. I picture these guys with, in modern setting, black leather robes (laughs) with metal studs, you know, (laughs) spiked hair, Sons of Thunder. Then there was Thomas, Mr. Positive. Great guy for team building. Doubts everything you say. Jesus chose them knowing their disposition, their character, and their future. This speaks to us of his affection. One of the greatest stories I heard was a story of a huge stone that had been cut out of the Carrara marble quarries in Italy and taken to Florence. The idea is that this would be presented to one of the great sculptors of Florence, and he would make it into a statue. It had flaws in it. And one of the great artists of the time, Donatello, looked at it, and he said, because of the flaws, it is useless to me. And it sat in a cathedral yard for a long, long time. Another artist came by and saw this stone. Notice the flaws but was very interested and he said, there's an angel trapped inside and I must get it out. And so he took the stone and he worked on it and he worked on it for months until its unveiling. January 25th, 1504. He unveiled it before all of Florence at a special ceremony. His name was Michelangelo. The work was David. One of the greatest works ever. He saw the flaws, but he saw the potential. And Jesus, with the disciples, and let's put us in that camp, sees all of the flaws in our character and personality, but he sees us filled with potential. That's his selection based on love. Look now at verse 15. Part of the friendship that Jesus has with us is that he speaks to us, he reveals things to us, he doesn't keep things a secret. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now slaves never had to be given reasons for their tasks. They just had to do it. Do what I tell you, I'm not going to tell you anything more. That's how slaves work with their masters. But a friend is different. A friend is a confidant. A friend has access and shares the knowledge of his or her superior. In fact, in the Roman courts, there was a select group of friends known as the friends of the emperor. This select group had uh, the kind of access that others did not have for reasons of advice and other things, just to hang out together. Friends of the emperor, friends of the king. The idea then is access because friends talk to each other, sometimes for hours And hours. And they bear their souls and they pour out their hurts and their hopes and their dreams. Communication among friends flows freely. Things are revealed. Now Jesus told his disciples everything. Everything. Think how much stuff he told them in three and a half years. Think of just the Sermon on the Mount. He told them how to get to heaven. He told them what to do before you get to heaven while you're on earth. He told them how to pray, your relationship to the world, how to spot false prophets, on and on, just in one message. Then a few days before this scene at the upper room, he was on the Mount of Olives and gave them the Olivet Discourse and told them all about the future of Jerusalem, that it would fall in 70 A.D. He talked about the tribulation period, his second coming. Then the stuff that he told them in the upper room, A description of heaven is given, the promise of the Holy Spirit to help them, etc., etc. In fact, he gave them so much stuff that he promised them, you're not going to remember it all, the Holy Spirit's going to come and bring all the stuff I told you to your memory. That's how much he told them. And he even wanted to tell them more stuff, but he knew they couldn't handle it. Look down in chapter 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus has unfolded and unveiled all that the Father has given to them. Told them everything. Because that's what friends do. Jesus, as our friend, speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word. He speaks to us through His Holy Spirit abiding in us. He comforts us and encourages us. He gives us... Direction for our families. When we have to make tough choices, when we're confused, He speaks to us. When our hearts are broken, sometimes words are unnecessary. Sometimes He doesn't have to speak a word. You just know what your Master is doing. He's there as the God of all comfort. You may have heard of Leo Buscaglia, who's an author and a lecturer. He tells a great story. He said one of the most unusual contests he was ever asked to help judge, was to find the most caring child. It was the most caring child contest. And so, they had a list of kids. They heard their stories. The guy who won was a four-year-old boy whose neighbor had recently lost his wife. One day, the little boy jumped over his neighbor's fence because he heard his neighbor crying, went inside the house, sat on his lap. And his mom said, well, what you tell him? He said, I didn't tell him anything. I just sat there and helped him cry. And there are times, aren't there, when our hearts are so busted up because of a circumstance that the God of all comfort, the Lord Jesus Christ, is there in our tears. No long messages, no great sermons explaining heaven and hope. Just He's there. Look back at verse 13. A further description of His friendship. He sacrificed for us. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for His friends. We know what that's a reference to. The highest, fullest expression of His love, the cross. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the same author says, By this we know love. This is how. Because He laid down His life for us. Every now and then you'll hear stories about people who sacrificed their lives for their friends. The most recent one is some of the firefighters in New York, police officers, port authorities, and others. They gave their lives for coworkers and friends. Another story comes to my mind. It was the guy who founded the Navigators Christian Discipleship Ministry. His name was Dawson Trotman. An expert swimmer who died of drowning. Interesting. He was on one of the Great Lakes, probably off the coast of Chicago somewhere. The boat started taking on water. It started sinking. People were overboard. They couldn't swim. He went down, rescued them, brought them to safety, went down, rescued others, was so exhausted that he died in the rescue effort. I believe it was Newsweek magazine that featured his death at the time, and they said, Dawson Trotman always holding somebody else up. That's what they said of him. Always holding somebody else up. No greater love is there than somebody who would give himself for his friends. Now think of it. Jesus didn't just choose us. Jesus didn't just reveal stuff to us. Jesus bled for us. And he knew what he was doing before he even went to the cross. Why? Why didn't he simply come, make friends with people, do a nice bunch of tricks, miracles, say a nice bunch of words, sermons, and go home? You know why? Because all Jesus' friends are sinners. And all Jesus' friends, for them to get to heaven, require a blood sacrifice. And the ultimate form of friendship is to become that sacrifice. So that all of his friends could be in his Father's house forever and ever. So as he bled on the cross, the first thing he said is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness was our greatest need. Forgiveness was his greatest accomplishment. And so we sang that hymn tonight. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. He, he chose us in his high position to be friends. He reveals things to us. Here we are week by week understanding the plan of God more fully. And then, to top it all off, the ultimate expression is he bled for his friends because all of us are sinners. That's what kind of a friend he is. Now, let's look at the second part of this, the other side of the coin. Though the emphasis is mostly on what kind of a friend Jesus is, let's see what kind of a friend we are to Him. There's one verse, verse 14. You are my friends, but there's a little word that bothers some of us. It's the next word. It's a little tiny two-letter condition. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, before you and I start feeling very convicted about this and squirm all over the place because of the obedience issue, we ought to be really glad Jesus said this. We should be really relieved that Jesus didn't say, you are my friends if you live exactly like I lived and do exactly what I've done and be the kind of a friend exactly like I am. Because we would all feel very discouraged. When was the last time you gave your life for your friends? And so he simply says, You're my friends if you obey me. If you obey me. It's a simple command. There's 11 words to verse 14. But I want you to notice it a little more carefully. His friends obey him actively. His friends obey him actively. Jesus says, You're my friends if you... Do. That's a positive thing. He didn't say, you're my friends if you don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing. But if you do something. Now I'll tell you why I'm emphasizing that. Because I meet a lot of people who place all of the emphasis in their Christian walk on all the things they refrain from. Aren't I good? I don't do that. And I'm really great because I don't do that. Their Christianity is in negatives. Negatives. I don't smoke. I don't chew. And I won't go with girls that do. (laughs) And so as one person said, they have enough religion to make them decent, but not enough to make them dynamic. It's all what they don't do. Jesus said, you're my friends, if you do, it's active. The issue is, what do you not do for him? What have you given up? But what do you do for him? Second, his friends obey repeatedly. The word do is a present subjunctive. In other words, you're my friends if you keep on doing, if you keep on obeying. He didn't say do what I command and then quit. Keep it up. The idea isn't just obey me on Sundays and that's it. When you feel like it and that's it. While people are looking and that's it. Obey me in front of the senior pastor but you don't have to worry about the ushers Or the people in the parking lot, or the assistants, just certain times, certain people. It's a repeated, it's a lifestyle, it's a continual thing. There's no vacation from being a disciple. You don't take a sabbatical. You don't decide, well, I'm going to backslide for two weeks and then I'll repent. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to sin in January, repent in February, I'll be ready for spring. No, it's a whole lifestyle of obedience. That's a disciple. It's the whole idea we spoke about. Abide in me and I in you. That continuing, that maintaining. It's in the present tense. The greatest testimony I've ever heard is not used to be a drunk and a murderer and a dope addict and then I came to Christ. The best testimony I've heard is somebody who met Christ as a young child and continued following Him as they grew up, as they went through junior high and high school and college and kept following Him. It's the testimony to the keeping power of Christ. I'll tell you why I say that. Because when I hear testimony sometimes, it's almost as if if you don't have as cool as a testimony as I have, if you weren't as rotten a sinner as I used to be, then your testimony really isn't of any value. I knew a kid like this in high school. He even said, man, I wish I had a testimony like some of these hippies that come to Christ have. I mean, they were really bad. And he told me, he goes, I think I need to really be bad so that I'll know what it's like to be good. I said, Johnny, don't you dare think that. He felt guilty because of somebody else's sin. No, you're my disciple. You keep following. You keep obeying. And then third, and we close with this, his friends obey unconditionally. Look at the emphasis. If you do whatever I command you, whatever. You show your friendship to Jesus by obeying him in all things, not a few things. You don't pick and choose, folks. Well, tell you what, Lord. I'll obey you in my business, but I won't obey you in my marriage. All right? Or, or I'll obey you in my business and my marriage, but not in my income tax returns. No, you'll do whatever I command you. Why? Because, isn't that what the word Lord means? What does that mean? Why do you call me Lord? Lord, Jesus said, but you don't do the things I've commanded you. Mark Twain told a great story. True story. He met a man in his travels. He was from Boston, Massachusetts, a ruthless Boston businessman. He was the kind of guy that pushed his way through life, got what he wanted. If he was determined to have a goal accomplished, he would get it accomplished, didn't care who he hurt. Twain knew this about him. Well, one time in a conversation with Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, the Boston businessman said, You know, one of these days I'm going to make it to the Holy Land. And when I'm there, I'm going to climb up to Mount Sinai. And when I'm on top of Mount Sinai, I'm going to bring a Bible and open it up and I'm going to read at the top of my voice as loud as I can. I'm going to shout out the Ten Commandments. And Mark Twain said, Friend, I have a better idea. Stay in Boston and keep them. Keep them. Obey them. Let Christ into every aspect of your life. Tonight, go home and think, Wow, Jesus is such a good friend. But also, am I a good friend to Him? Do I obey Him? And I bet we can all think of areas in our lives where we need to let Him into, let Him have a part of, let Him be the ruler and the king over, right? There's certain things He's been speaking to us about and He says, Hey, I I love you. I've given myself for you. I'll keep revealing myself to you, but I want that part of your life. I want you to open the door to those few hours in the evening or I want your leisure time. I want your vacation time. I want your business. I want your marriage time. I want you to obey me in these things. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask you now as... The Lord of all, as the searcher of all hearts, to search our heart. During these moments, Lord, we choose not to think about anyone else. We're not going to think of anyone else who we think may need to hear this. We think only now of ourselves. The search is inward at this moment. And first of all, we bless you and we thank you There is no friend like the lowly Jesus who condescended in such greatness to choose us, who predestined us before we were born and knowing all about us, chose us anyway. And how you constantly reveal things to us. How blessed we are to live in a country where there's Bible study freely given on radio stations, television, books. And it's restricted in so many other parts of the world. You speak to us, Lord. We, we feel like treasured friends. You gave yourself for us, Lord, because all of your friends are sinners. And that's how much you love them. We're such good friends, you want to take us to heaven. I pray, Lord, we would in turn continually, habitually obey and do whatever you command us. Let you into every area of our life. Show us those things that we have closed the door to. Lord, I want to pray for those who have never been your friend, have never obeyed you in salvation. They've heard of you. They've liked the stories about you. But they don't know you. You gave your life to make friends all over the world. You gave your life to make some new friends here tonight. And one of the things you commanded us is to receive you. To make a choice. It is our choice. But we must make it. You've already chosen us, but... Tonight, you're asking, will you choose me to be your friend? Will you let me love you? Will you let me wash away your sins? Those are choices that must be made in our own will. And I pray that you would do that for some who have come tonight, Lord. Save them. The rope has been thrown out. Who will grab a hold? Who will grab a hold?